Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Morkronen. I'm Brett Ewer. I'm Stephen Kipp. And today we're discussing the hidden meaning of Tolkien's universe. So that means we're going to get into what does Tolkien reveal about human psyche, about consciousness, and about the nature of reality itself through his major works, The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. And we're going to get into all of that in today's episode. But first, I just want to start with why are we gathered here today and none other? Much like how the nine members of the fellowship all found themselves in Rivendell right at the appointed hour, we have found ourselves here on this podcast discussing (laughs) Tolkien. So let's start there. Why do you guys love Tolkien and how did you first get into his work? What was your first exposure? Maybe, Brett, we can start with you. Man, I just, I was just a loser in middle school. I think that's kind of what brought me to it. No, 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 for real, for real. Um, I was first introduced to it by uh, the Rankin and Bass Hobbit from 1977 and then Return of the King in 1980. Both of my brothers were like in love with that. I loved it too. And then afterward, we just started, um, I don't know, I just got into the books and that was right at the time when the movies were coming out. Everything was perfect. So that, that was yeah. my introduction to it. And how about you, Stephen? Yeah, I had, I guess, a typical, whatever, millennial or Gen Z intro into it where I watched the movies first because, you know, I was, whatever, eight years old, however old when they were coming out and loved those and played the video games. And Mm. honestly, it wasn't until late high school that I read the books. And really, I was, you know, I love the movies, but wasn't a big fan. But I remember watching them at some point in high school and wondering, I wonder how he does Gollum in the books because I love the character and just, you know, how is we see how he does it in the movies, but how would he do that back and forth, that double character in one? So I kind of just read it on a whim and then found it was way deeper than I even expected. It just opened a wormhole. Yeah. Yeah, I had a similar experience where I loved the movies as a kid. I even we even made a spoof movie, The Lord of the Shoe, with like my cousins when we were really young. <laughs> But I and I didn't really get into the books until just recently. I had read The Hobbit and The Fellowship when I was like 12, but I just reread the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit and The Silmarillion. And to be say I was blown away is an understatement. I mean, the truths that Tolkien reveals through his work are something you can't really reveal through anything other than the world building and mythology that he's leveraged. And I just want to start with a quote that is from Tolkien himself where he says that the stories arose in my mind as given things. And as they came separately, so too the links grew, an absorbing yet continually interrupted labor. Yet always I had the sense of recording what was already there, something not of inventing. So this notion of him getting at the deeper truths of reality through mythology that you cannot get through through any other medium is just really powerful and you know it's it's why it resonates with so many people you know not just us but millions around the world and it sparked game of thrones and harry potter and dungeons and dragons and a limitless inspiration has come out of his world yeah um, i mean I, I i think it kicked off an entire genre and obviously there are people that study this you know like high fantasy and all of that but you think about what is the template for most high fantasy or high fantasy media that you encounter like world of warcraft or 
or, uh, you know, even Game of Thrones is supposed to be based off of George R. R. Martin being like, what's Aragorn's tax policy or whatever his silly, <laughs> like whatever his silly explanation is. I, I'll take issue with that later. But like, just the fact that it served as such a, I mean, it is the template. And so, mm. you know, if you want to understand so much other media, you really have to, you really have to reckon with it and give it its due. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great prelude. And as far as where to start, I want to start with creation, which is described in the Silmarillion. And this is the first age. And then we'll get to the second age and the third age and discuss the themes that he brings into the picture later on. But I love Tolkien's view on creation. Reading the Silmarillion, it's not like reading the Lord of the Rings, where it's like a novel with protagonists. It really feels like reading a religious text, much like the Torah or like the uh, you know, the theogony of, you know, Greek and Romans. And so let's start with the very first words of the Silmarillion. There was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he made first the Ainur, the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before all else was made. Then Iluvatar said to them, of the theme that I have declared to you, I will now that ye make in great harmony together a great music. So, my, I mean, my own thinking of this is like, obviously, Iluvatar is like the monotheistic God or the oneness of all beings. And I love the notion that he thinks these gods into existence. They're aspects of his thought. And I haven't really seen that anywhere else. Um, so the Ainur being aspects of his thought, I think, is uh, really fascinating. And the fact that he lives in the timeless halls also seems like he's the highest dimensional being. He's at least in the fourth dimension or beyond the fourth dimension because he exists in the timeless halls. And then the music is basically the construction of reality through the aspects of his thought interplaying with one another. And even Melkor enters the picture and he disrupts the music, but it makes it all the richer. It's like having those really, it's almost like noise music. Like, you know, sometimes you just want to mosh and have some like noise and chaos or like some immense sadness. And so I love this metaphor of reality being the music of these divine spirits all taking place within the mind of Iluvatar. It's a, it's a metaphor that can, that can um, encompass the idea of dissonance, which you, which, you know, has, which is necessary for the story to be interesting. Like if it just ended with like, yeah, and then all the Einar made a beautiful song and it was great. <laughs> then it's like, all right, well, why the hell am I reading this? Like what, you know, so the fact that that, that that metaphor is so capacious is great, but Matamor, could you read, could you read the uh, beginning of the Silmarillion again? Cause I'm going to read something right after yeah. I want people to listen to the similarities. There was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar. And he made first the Ainur, the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought. And they were with him before all else was made. All right. Now I'm going to read from, this is the beginning of the Gospel of John. I don't know what the translation is, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you see this comparison where it's like, I mean, it's it's pretty much the same kind of rhetorical technique there. It's like, tautology after tautology, but it's there to establish the very basic axioms of the world. In this case, you know, John 
he's using a light darkness kind of metaphor pretty explicitly while Tolkien's was more wrapped up in music. I kind of prefer Tolkien's to be honest. Mm. I think it's a little bit more interesting, <laughs> um, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to bring that out because I bet Tolkien wrote that beginning. I mean, he probably wrote that very beginning part of the Silmarillion um, or I guess, what is it called? I knew Lindley or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I just, I just picked up on a connection there from you. I never uh, thought to reference the gospel of John for the parallel, but what was the line that you just read? Something about the light uh, in mankind, something like that. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines mm. in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the, I was just thinking on the, the flame imperishable, the secret fire, you know, mm. that gets referenced a lot. And it's kind of one of the, I've found one of the most like mysterious and hard to peg down aspects of the creation story. But I was just listening to, um, I listen to the Prancing Pony podcast a lot. Really good resource <laughs> if you're a Tolkien fan. Um, but they were just talking about the secret fire, the flame imperishable as kind of the essence of creativity, the the creative power that only Iluvatar has and only Iluvatar can bestow. I, and now I'm just seeing that parallel in the Gospel of John too. It's kind of like God instills the light and that's at the center of all creation, the same way that the flame imperishable is kind of this thing, this creative power Iluvatar has that he sets in all of his creation. Yeah, and, and that's a big theme in Tolkien. And he talks a lot about the sub-creative which is a fascinating concept I had never heard before. Yes. And basically the notion is that Iluvatar is the only true creator because everything else is taking place within his mind. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, his creations have the ability to create other things themselves. And that is the sub-creative power. And there's oftentimes this, this tension between the sub-creative wanting to create art and beauty for its own sake versus wanting to create things to get power and dominion. And depending, it's almost like we all come into this world as a soul and we have to go in one direction or the other. Either we get drawn by the sub-creative power towards desire and power and dominance and the forces of Melkor, or we get drawn towards wanting to create art and beauty and flourishing not only for ourselves, but for all beings here and in the future. Yeah, subcreation. I remember he uses the the image of like refracted light, mm. like uh, subcreators yeah. are just light refracting off. But then your point that this is like huge for just the music and how everything moves forward. And he's talking about what the main themes of Lord of the Rings are, and he says one of them is like magic or power, domination of wills, and that that is kind of the source of evil in mm. the whole legendarium, and we see it right away with Melkor trying to create on his own, like his own mm -hmm. secret fire. But you can't have that because that's only Iluvatar's. It just sets everything in motion. Well, you bring up also the notion of light refracting against each other to create this music of Ainur, to create the fabric of reality. And there's also a similar concept in Hinduism, which is Indra's net of jewels. And this metaphor is basically that every conscious being is reflected by all the other conscious beings and those reflections create the fabric of reality because when you think about like any individual being the things you think about have to do with other conscious beings it's like no man is an island complete in and of himself 
So what creates this music is the refracting light of all of these various conscious beings vying for each other through this incredible music. Um, and I, I find that incredibly beautiful way of describing reality. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a be- it's a beautiful metaphor, no matter what, what Tolkien set out. And, and I just want to draw back to how like expansive it is, is that, you know, that music metaphor can take in dissonance. Like, I mean, are you, are you both familiar with, um, it's a kind of, mu- it's uh, called chromaticism. It's like a school of music where you try to use every, uh, you try to use every chromatic step before you reuse another note. So like before, let's say you Mm. use C before you can go back to C again, you got to use everything between C and B. So you got to use C sharp, D, D sharp, E, et cetera. And so it's like that music usually sounds pretty funky to us and it's not very Mm -hmm. harmonically like nice, (laughs) you know, it's not like one, three, five, you'd normally hear like a major chord, but it still has its place within music. And so that's why I just, I think the metaphor is so, beautiful is that it can actually create something which is interesting to engage with. Oh, yeah. And when you think about the long arc of history, music is a great way to think about it because history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme in the words of Mark Twain. And you can see that through the legendarium of Tolkien, where there is, you know, it starts out, everything is good. Everything is immaculate. They're living in Valinor. And then there's a little seed of evil with Melkor playing his own tune. And then there's eventually a great battle and then goodness prevails. And then the seed of evil grows again. And then thousands of years later, there's another great battle. And obviously, you know, Tolkien lived through World War One, World War Two. He could already see these cycles playing out. And so I think thinking about that long arc of history as music that rhymes uh, is a really useful lens. But I want to get a little bit more into the sub-creative, specifically about the creation's within Tolkien's world. So we already talked about Iluvatar, the oneness of all beings, the Ainur, which are like, you know, they're almost like Greek gods or divine powers or, you know, aspects of his thought. And then within the Ainur, there's the Valar, which are kind of like the 12 Olympian gods, like Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, or like Manwe, Omo, and Melkor. And then you have the lesser gods, which is like my, the Maiar, which are more like Greek or Roman deity, like, you know, local deities, perhaps, or saints. And so this would be like the wizards and the Balrogs or Maiar. Um, and then underneath them, there are the creations of earthly beings. And so I want to get your thoughts on what Tolkien means to represent by these races. So he has the elves, which were created by Iluvatar. There are the dwarves created by Aule, the smith. There are ants created by Yavanna, the giver of fruits. And then there's orcs, goblins, and trolls, which were not so much created by Melkor, but corrupted by Melkor and bred to become something other than what they were originally intended. Um, So I'd love to just get your thoughts on what does Tolkien mean to represent by the elves in in contrast to men? And what's the deal with orcs and hobbits and goblins and all this? Like, what is he he getting at by creating these races? Mm. You know, I think he follows, if we want to follow the pattern, kind of looking at it like the Olympian, you know, like, like the Greek system is (laughs) the Greek system, like frats. No, um, like, you know, (laughs) like, like the Olympian downward, you know, it's like you have, you have sure the Olympians are the Valar and then the Maiar you have like, you know, nymphs or whatever, you know, the river gods, Mm -hmm. minor gods that somehow come up in local deities. Yeah. Local, you know, Oh, the God of that Hill. Okay. 
Um, so you have that guy, you know, that's like, uh, I think of, uh, the river Scamander in the Iliad comes up often, like the God mm, Scamander, right. but he's, he shows up like, you know, once, whatever. Um, and then, you know, Aeolus, you have, the God of a certain wind. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like, all right, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but like the, you know, where I see the elves in that is like, they are like the traditional Greek heroes. They are the people who are, you know, they're like Hercules, they're Theseus, they're that generation of people that mm. do great things. They establish the first cities. They like pass, you know, they are the creators of lore of what ultimately becomes consumed as lore, you know, especially in the Silmarillion where it plays out. That's where you get all of the grandeur and then everything after that is kind of just echoes or reflections on that same theme. So that's like, you know, that's like the original, uh, that's the original heft, right? Like that's the original flavor. And then everything else is kind of just spinning off of that. Um, so that's kind of how I see them. And I yeah. think, yeah, sorry, but <laughs> I could go on. Yeah, what, are, what are your thoughts on the, on the elves, Stephen? No, there's a, I've always thought it was interesting. It seems clear that, you know, this is, the the laying out of the hierarchy is like you know laying out just here's a this is a mythology that he's creating and but the role of the elves seems like especially first age just early silmarillion they seem to kind of be fulfilling a role that most in most mythologies would be men because they have a fall of their own you know like a moral fall and it's all the whole story is them reconciling with that and that feels, I mean, not that it's a straight Adam and Eve type of thing, but it feels like most mythologies would be explaining, here's how men fall and here's how we got to where we are today. But it's almost like Tolkien pushed the timeline back and said elves mm. fell and they reconciled and then men came along and they fell too. And then it, you know, it even connects all the way to modern day eventually. But I've always thought that was interesting. It's, I think that's one point where it's clear that he was working on the Silmarillion separately from, you know, The Hobbit and then ended up tying them all together you know yeah it's it's fascinating that he thinks of reality from the elves perspective not from the human perspective and that's so unique normally everything is written from the human perspective because we're humans but to look at reality through the lens of another race i think makes it a really special way that we can have some distance between the reality we live and the reality we think of in an abstract way and i guess like the way i i mostly think of it you know, the emergence tower where there's different dimensionality, like for instance, like the cells in our bodies are a subset of us and we are a subset of all of human society and all of human society is a subset of the planet Earth and all of Earth is a subset of the universe. You can kind of think of reality as all being connected like a kaleidoscope with these different dimensions. And so I view that as like Iluvatar is like is the kaleidoscope, like he's the whole thing. And then you get into like the Valar and the Maiar, like aspects of him. And then I view elves as like, you know, a step down from Maiar where they're immortal, but they're not quite as powerful as the Valar. And if you think about what it would be like to be an immortal creature like an elf, your concerns are totally different than the concerns of a man. You're not concerned with death because you're immortal. Instead, you're concerned with the weight of deathlessness with never being able to relinquish your life. And so the elves, they know that the age of men is dawning and that their age is coming to an end. And so they become obsessed with, with hoarding memory and fading 
and making way for for man, but also in a little bit of a depressed way where they're like, well, our age is coming to an end. And uh, I, I want to get your guys' reactions to that because I don't have all the answers here. But I, I think it's it's so interesting to think about human nature in that lens of like, if we were immortal, this is how we would behave. And in that sense, it may be a blessing that humans have mortality. And it's called a gift from a Louvatar, the fact that right. we have these short lives and we can learn so much from age to age. And we, we don't have these like endless lives where we you know, they're constantly strung out and spread thin, like butter over too much bread. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the gift because that's like it, a constant theme that keeps coming back, even for the people, you know, even for the Numenorians and, and any human that has, you know, I guess any of the Adine, right? Like that have the long life. Um, it's always being viewed as some kind of positive. It's like, oh, thank God you get to get out of here where there's this constant strife. And there is a sense that the gift that men have is not just, it's freedom. I mean, the elves know what they're going to get, right? Like they're either right. going to be in the halls of Mandos forever until something or whatever. and Or they're going to be in Valinor if they were the boring, the most boring and didn't do anything in Middle Earth. Or if they were in Middle Earth, they get to like get a little mix of the two. They get some flavor. But for men, there is, so they know what's going to happen. And there is torture in fully knowing in having nothing new, in having no novelty. They say that elves live more in memory than in the present, which I thought is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it's like when they sleep, they're literally just like reliving their memories. So men are more like men of action. They live in the present. They do great deeds. They're courageous. Whereas elves are more like sleepily, like half in this world, half in another, living in memory. And you totally get that impression in Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings especially. It seems like... Every there's just such a sadness to all the elves that you encounter, you know? Yeah. There is, I kind of feel the sadness when I think about like the far West of middle earth, like after like in the second and third age after Beleriand is sunk and you just have just that little piece that's like, of old, you know, the Linden, right? Like the Gulf of Loon, mm -hmm. like where it's like, Oh, you can just see what used to be there. Like you can just see what used to be <laughs> right. really cool and awesome. And just, so, literally epic. I mean, everything in Middle Earth is kind of just based off of all of the glory that existed in that lost part of the continent. Um, and so you get that same sense of sadness when you look at that, just that little strip that remains. And it totally makes sense that it's from there that they all leave, you know, because they're like, all right, well, this is what we were used to. And bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, or, that was great. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about some of the other races and what he means by them. So after the elves, which are the firstborn, then they have the followers, which are men. And the first men are the Numenorians. And they almost become like half, they're called the half elven, uh, where they basically like, they have some aspects of elvish blood and some of them choose to be more like elves, whereas other ones choose to be more like men. So it's interesting that there's a mixing of those two. And then other than them, there's dwarves, which were not created by Iluvatar. They were created by Aule, who's kind of like, Hephaestus, he's like the god of like the earth and mining. Um, and then the Ents were created by Yavanna, who's kind of like Mother Earth. Um, and then the Orcs were created by Melkor and mockery of the others. So specifically, I'm curious, what do you guys think is represented by dwarves? What is that meant to represent, if anything? Uh, you know, Tolkien's obviously drawing on the old like Germanic tradition of dwarves, right? And, you, you know, there's some 
interesting history about what that's supposed to represent. I'll leave that to the side, but um, <laughs> I'll leave that one to the side. Uh, similar to J.K. Rowling's goblins, I think is a it's a very similar uh, uh, lineage. I'll just leave it. Well, at there, that. there is a, at least the to soften that blow because there there's an actual interview where he directly says, you know, don't the dwarves the the history of the dwarves parallels the Hebrews, you know. But also, he, and this is a tying back to just a whole can of worms, is the languages, right? Mm-hmm. And he always says he starts with languages first and then would apply them to the people. And could seems like a case where, you know, he developed this Hebrew-based language and then it got applied to the dwarves. I don't know enough about, you know, how, how the storylines develop from there. But that's at least just a... a a cool way that it ties in, you know, what I think is so cool about the creation of the dwarves is the duality between. So, okay. You know, you have elves, you have the first, first they're there. They ha- they are the most pure. They have the, you know, uh, I think there's a phrase for it. It's the spirit that Iluvatar imbues in them. Um, could be secret fire. Steven, you want to check me on that one? <laughs> <laughs> that Iluvatar um, puts in them. Yeah. 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 So I think you're right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what I think is interesting is the duality between uh, the creation of dwarves and the creation of like the first orcs is that neither of them are really truly original creations. I mean, Aule, you know, forms them, but he doesn't, he doesn't awake them, right? That's, that's up to Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. He's the one who brings them awake. He is the only, you know, real prime creative power. Um, and then, you know, obviously with, with the orcs, they're not, they weren't created in the traditional sense. They were kind of twisted or yeah, made they were out like of... captured elves that were tortured and bred. Yeah, exactly. So what I think is so cool is that both of the Valar that undertook that are two of the ones which are most renowned for their craft and skill, right? Like Aule was, you know, always kind of the one who oversaw the, the Noldor and all of their craft making and all of that. And then Melkor is, just known for being for stirring shit <laughs> but in stirring shit and doing something he is in a way sub you know he is doing a kind of creation it's just not the prime real creation uh, i just thought that was an interesting duality um you know it was set up pretty close yeah. in the creation story yeah i view i mean i view basically all of the races as being aspects of human nature and i would say that the dwarves seem to be the aspect of nature that at its best is industriousness, working really hard, like being close to the earth, crafting amazing things. Like I would say also ambition in like a better sense of the word. Whereas in the, in the bad, the bad part of the dwarves is that they are also prone to greed and to digging too deep to trying to get so much gold. And eventually, you know, what happens when you get too much gold dragons awake and and they mess everything up. And so I thought it was interesting that there also is an alliance between elves and dwarves where they create the most incredible creations throughout the whole legendarium, but then they, they have a falling apart. So it seems like dwarves in their best sense are aligned with the elves and that they create things for the sake of art and for great creations. And in the worst sense, they're more aligned with Melkor for the sake of greed and just plundering as much gold and money as they can. Absolutely. Um, and I remember too, uh, right when, um, just in that 
you kind of see the foreshadowing of that dark side right after, you know, Aulu, LA creates them. And we have kind of that Moses and Isaac, uh, or not Abraham and Isaac moment where he almost has to kill his creation, but Iluvatar mm-hmm. stops him. And then Yavanna says to him, to Aule, that basically the dwarves, since you created them separate from anyone's knowledge, separate from my knowledge, they'll have no love for my creations. They'll have no love for just the, the natural world and they'll abuse it for their own ends. I thought that was just a way of, you totally see how the rest can follow all the way at the beginning of before time even started, basically. Yeah. yeah. And it also, just on a lighter note, it seems like the dwarves would be a lot more fun to party with. They seem <laughs> like a lot less, like elves seem like they have anxiety disorders. Like they're always living in their heads and like they're going over memories and like perseverating on things. Dwarves seem like they're really down to just party, you know, just make cool shit. Like, I don't know. They, they seem like fun, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then, I mean, it seems pretty clear that by the ants, that is the consciousness of nature like the trees, the forest, the mycelial network, and then trolls are like the evil counterpart of that, like rotting mold and nasty stuff of the earth. So you brought up something really interesting, Stephen, which is the aspect of language and Mm -hmm. how part of why Tolkien's world feels so thorough and so true is because every single name in the story is created from one of the 15 plus languages that Tolkien created. So everything is imbued with some meaning. And I think Tolkien is really wise in that he recognizes that thought and culture are a function of language. And you cannot properly depict culture or thought without having the language to back it. So it's almost like he knew what the story was going to be. The story writes itself. And he just spent a lot of time bringing it to life more fully by creating the proper grammatical structures, the clensions, the history behind why they use those words. I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely unbelievable. And I'll, yeah. I'll just say one quote, and then I want to get your your quote on it. And he says, many children make up or begin to make up imaginary languages. I have been at it since I could write. Out of these languages are made nearly all the names that appear in my legends. This gives a certain character, a cohesion, a consistency of linguistic style, and an illusion of historicity that is markedly lacking in any other comparable things. Yeah, it's almost the reverse of how you would think anyone would write it. You'd think people would have the story and then say, all right, I'll make up some language. But he had the language and said, well, people had to speak these. So who, what were they like? Given, I wonder how much that was influenced if he had a certain language and then said, well, this sounds, you know, if he had the Quenya language written out, said, this is how the the people would feel like who speak this and then you get yeah. these, you know, high art elves, basically. I don't know if that well, was how it happened, but I could see that. Well, the fact that he started making these languages as a kid, as soon as he could write, it almost gives it this sort of like divine prophecy that was like using yeah. him as a vessel to <laughs> deliver this world. And then I don't know if you guys saw the movie about his life, uh, the Tolkien movie. Yeah, But it literally, they do such a great job of showing what's happening in the primary real world. Like he's in World War One, and then he'll see this guy with a flamethrower, like coming over the trenches in trench warfare. And he literally sees like a dragon blowing fire and he sees the machines of Sauron. And it's like he is seeing what's happening on the spiritual plane at the same time that he's living 
in the primary plane. So much of when I think of whenever he mentions like the siege of whatever, like the siege of Angband or whatever, I think, you know, and he's talking about like a 400 year siege. You can't help but think with just the most basic knowledge of Tolkien, oh, this is trench warfare. We're talking about like mm-hmm. people just living in terror for 400 years or however long it felt for an elf, you know, but, uh, but, um, but it, it's very evocative and it certainly frames the fantasy in a way that we all can understand with even just cursory knowledge of world war one. Um, you know, you can imagine, yeah, like a dragon being a flamethrower or, uh, or a troll being a tank, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's, it's very understandable. There's some kind of relation for the force, but going back to language, one of the things that I love so much about it is the, you know, in the, the creation myth, the um, parallelism just in the names. So like you have Ingwe, Finwe, Olwe, Elwe, and you just have all mm. of those lined up. And then through time, you can see how the language based off of the different sunderings of elves, how it changes. So you have someone named, you know, Elwe Singolo, who becomes Elu Thingol. And you're like, okay, so how does that work? Like, okay, so they lost the W. They started <laughs> oh, yeah. lisping. At some point, they started lisping. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> they dropped off the vowel. Like, it's... Yeah, in the fact that he makes the time to come up with different words in different languages for the same thing. And this is so brilliant because it re- it reveals the fact that he's he's getting across concepts that are beyond language. And so he'll have one concept that, you know, is one thing in what in the language of men, the you know, the common tongue of the West, and it'll be another thing in the in the elvish tongue, and yet another thing in the evil tongue of Mordor. And so by triangulating the various languages, you can understand the concept so much more fully than with just one language. Yeah, and I'll say understanding the language, or at least the basic words, makes understanding the place names so much easier. <laughs> You're oh, like, yeah. okay, right. which which dole is this? Which hill? Like, what are we talking about? Like, okay, okay. Right, yeah. another, you know, um, it just makes it so much easier. But, but you know, something that was brought up earlier is so right. Is like, okay, you have the words now. Now you actually have to connect them to some kind of like semantic, some like underlying meaning to them. And that's how you imbue the language with some kind of significance is that you have a history and a legend underneath it that can communicate all of this. So you have... I don't know, name a Dole in Valerian, and then you think, oh, Dole Amrith in Gondor. Like, that all makes sense now. Like, there's some kind of connecting lineage. There's reverberations. There's rhyming. It's very cool. It's so fleshed yeah. out. The connecting yeah. lineage part is is huge because he, he talks about the historiosity. And he also says that part of the reason he wrote this was an homage to England. And he felt like England didn't have the legends that he wished it had. You know, obviously they have King Arthur, the sword and the stone, but it doesn't have the underpinnings that his universe has. And so he, and he literally has a quote where he says, I was from the early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own bound up with tongue and soil, except perhaps King Arthur. His legends are dedicated to England, his home. And so it does seem like he is almost telling the story of the essence of England or what it, what it means to be the culture where he was living in, which is very similar to the culture here in America or the whole Western, Western Hemisphere. And he basically brings to life all of that culture through this story. 
And his biggest, one of his biggest inspirations was Beowulf. And that is the first book that we still have that was written in Old English. So it almost feels like he's building on Beowulf to create this entire history that preceded, like from Pangea, like, like all the way, like before there was the modern continents. Yeah, I think he sees the thing that's missing from, say, an Arthur or whatever other English myth is the actual, just the is the myth part of it the the world building the whole you know in every other myth it's yeah it starts with creation you get the entire just essence of the of the values everything and everything else that england seemed to have were stories and legends and whatnot he really just built the entire world even it was seeming like the intersection of he calls it fairy like f-a-e-r-i-e old you know i don't know what the old usage of it is but just as like the the realm the realm of fairy and how that developed into modern day england yeah it's like it's like england and britain more largely at least anglo-saxon britain didn't have a cosmogony like Mm. arthur was in this weird romano-british kind of christian but like it's the it's the story of of britain adopting christianity and moving beyond celtic tradition to anglo-saxon tradition and it's the interplay there but in that interplay there's no like creation story it's just kind of uh, i guess there's allusions to the the christian you know creation story the the abrahamic creation story so it's really cool that he created this because he didn't just take you know arthurian legend that's all that's all britain really had he also said no i'm going to give you the whole thing we're going to go legend we're going to go to fairy tale like the hobbit we're going to have legend like Lord of the Rings. We're going to have then even a greater depth of legend, like what happened in Beleriand and, you know, Gondolin and all of these high lofty places. And then even before that, we're going to have the realm of myth with gods and demigods and then right. the creation. Like he really fleshes every step out. I want to touch, I hope this isn't tangential, but Brett, in one of your comments you brought up in talking about, um, the Arthur myth, you know, just on how this is a myth for England and how the Arthur myth was very explicitly Christian. And this is a point I remember reading directly from Tolkien. And he was a devout Catholic, but he said explicitly that he did not want his myth to resemble any religion Mm. of our world. I don't, there's, I don't even know exactly what I uh, take from it, but I think it's just really interesting as a devout Catholic that he really did not want people to read in Christianity necessarily. I mean, I think he wouldn't be opposed to people reading it in, but he did not want to uh, make it make allegorical, it explicit. clearly. Right, and make it explicit. I, I kind of like that he didn't because we already have, like C.S. Lewis, like I know that they wrote to each other, they were friends. Like we already have that. We already right. have yeah. that rendering of a very, I mean, come on, that's barely like... <laughs> it's barely covered. It's like just under the surface. It's such an obvious allegory. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at Brett is the distinction between myth and allegory. And Tolkien says specifically, quote, I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory. Yet any attempt to explain the purpose of myth must use allegorical language. So myth is like getting at the deeper truth of 
reality. Whereas allegory is just like, yeah, like you said, with like, you know, C.S. Lewis, it's like a, a thinly veiled facade for a story we already know. Whereas myth gets at, like, if you were to just tell the history of Athens or just the history of Los Angeles or, or whatever, like it may be totally like way more like quote unquote accurate from like historical events, but would it be as true of an account of everything that had taken place during those times? Like myth allows you to get at all of the experiences that all conscious beings are experiencing in one story that just gets at like the abstract archetypes, the divine archetypes. And this is what I, I want to get your reaction, but this is what I want to talk about next is the use of divine archetypes in Tolkien's story through the characters that he uses. I would say Aragorn is the archetype of a, of a valiant king and someone who always does the right thing and who makes a lot of sacrifices for the good of the kingdom. Uh, you know, I think it's a good point that you're bringing up, which is, I think, a critique of Tolkien is you could say that he is, that his characters are one dimensional and okay, maybe fine. But, but what you've shined a light on is the positive aspect here, which is that like they are archetypical and that's, what's mm. so cool about them is that, yeah, we're not, I'm when I read Lord of the Rings or any Tolkien work, I'm not expecting a fully like fleshed out. I'm not expecting Tony Soprano. Like I, I'm not, I don't want Frodo going to therapy. Like he can just right, be right. who he is. Like we don't need <laughs> a realistic gritty character or whatever. You just are getting an archetypical character. And that's great um, because you can sink into the archetypes. It's fun. You know, I do think the more that I reread them though, the more that I find the, some moral ambiguity to the characters. I do think like it is definitely true. They're archetypical and they tend to be one dimensional, but I like, for example, something that I just picked up on and did not ever notice before in my readings about Sam is when he's at, uh, Frodo's been, you know, stung by Shelob taken away by the orcs. Sam thinks he's dead. And I think, you know, he's by himself with the ring. He's in Mordor and he's like, what do I do? The archetypical character would say, you know, I've got to do what's right and go do it. And he does. But there is a second where he's considering his options. And one of the first things he considers is suicide. It's a really, it's like this implied line kind of, mm. but he thinks, you know, do I end it? Do I go home? And it's those slivers, I think, of moral ambiguity that really, there's such a, for how archetypical the characters are, there is such an implied depth that you don't always see immediately, but it's kind well, of in well, the cracks. Every character has free will. There is this interesting interplay between the forces of fate and the free will that characters have, where there is a balance between them. What would you uh, give Gollum's archetype role as? I would say this. Almost no characters are fully good or fully mm. evil. And this becomes very clear when they talk about who could bear the ring and withstand its temptation. And the only person that they think maybe could withstand it in the long run is Tom Bombadil. But they, yeah. and we can talk about him, but they say like, and, <laughs> and even him, in the end, he wouldn't be able to withstand all the forces of Mordor and he would depart last as he was first. So basically, other than Tom Bombadil, no one is wholly good. So everyone has aspects of good and evil that they're struggling with. So I would say Gollum is like, someone who is more 
has more gone towards the side of Melkor, but not entirely. He is yeah. beyond redemption, but not beyond pity or mercy. And yeah. other characters, like, for instance, uh, King Theoden, he, he was totally tricked by Grima Wormtongue, and he almost went fully to the dark side. But Gandalf was able to guide him back to the light. And so he is a great example of someone who went close to the light but came back, whereas Denethor is like his opposite. Denethor started off being a relatively good steward of Gondor, but then eventually in the end, like went mad and got too afraid and tried to kill himself with his son on the burning pile of fire. Yeah, if I had to think about Gollum and where he is as an archetype, I would think that he is the he is the quintessential, like he really tests your limit of how much you want to pity someone, right? Like he is just the most disgusting, almost un- unsympathetic character right like he is just the worst he's he's focused entirely on one thing no other real aspect to his character other than like eating fish or whatever um and grossly too um and then (laughs) right like but then you know he stands in as that as that it's almost like his archetype purely exists to be that person or that entity which you have to show pity for he really he exists to test a normal person's amount of pity because he is so unpitiable just in his natural state. Ever, everyone encounters him and they're like, ugh, this fucking thing? <laughs> ugh, gross. <laughs> yeah, and there's this, there's a specific point in the book where Gandalf, like Frodo is basically like, hey, why didn't Bilbo kill Gollum? And, you know, Gollum deserves death. And Gandalf says, deserve it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I was he really also gl- says, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I was really glad that they included that in the movie, because I thought yeah. that, that was, that's like, you know, you want to talk about a line that shows how wise Gandalf is? You want to establish that character's wisdom is like, yeah, even this guy who's half a god. <laughs> like understands that Gollum has to be, yeah. you know, there's, uh, I will submit uh, archetype for Elrond is dickish father-in-law. No, <laughs> he is kind of a dick, right? Like he's like, you know, no, no you got, you got to be the king yeah. to marry my daughter, you know? Exactly. <laughs> he kind of, I didn't even realize till recently how he parallels uh, Thingol you know, when Thingol tells Baron, like, all right, to marry my daughter, you have to go get a Silmaril. Yeah, right. But then it's kind of similar for Aragorn. He's this kind of homeless ranger. It's like, all right, go become king of Gondor if you want to marry my daughter. Gosh, you know, it, he doesn't get portrayed quite as... Well, you know, I, I wouldn't yeah. be so harsh on Elrond because he, like, basically, there he could see... He had the power of foresight, right? So he can see different directions the future would go. And if Aragorn didn't fulfill his destiny and become king, then that would mean the whole world would go to shit anyways. So if he was married to Arwen, and, but you know, I know it was mostly a joke. I think yeah. his archetype is really that specifically the house of Elrond, I view as the retreat to wise counsel, both before a journey and to reflect on a journey afterwards. And you'll notice that every time they go to the house of Elrond, it's either to get counsel before a journey or after it also serves as, you know, Rivendell, but more specifically the House of Elrond serves as a, it's always a beacon for what men could be 
especially in Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings, where you don't have Numenor. You, all you have are the remains of the Dúnedain scattered throughout, you know, old Arnor and maybe a little in Gondor. And like that always exists. His house always exists as one, a, a physical repository of all of the things that actually are, you know, like the shards of Narsil, but also a, I mean, it's his brother <laughs> founded like all of the line of, you know, Numenor. So it's like, he's always there. He collects that memory. He knows what men can be. um, And it's almost like he has to see that through. He has to see through their fulfillment before he can leave. Yeah. So the other aspect that I think you alluded to briefly, Stephen, is the notion that this isn't a normal quest. Like it's not the normal story that you would tell where, for instance, in the Holy Grail story, it's holy kings that are going to retrieve some treasure so that they can gain more power and prestige and honor for their kingdom. That's the typical quest that you all hear about. But the story of the Lord of the Rings is a story to destroy treasure, not to obtain it. And therefore, it's really a story of renunciation or relinquishment. Or in the Buddhist sense, it's about getting rid of your desires and not falling into temptation. And so I thought it's interesting that there's kind of this like reversal where the normal knights uh, that would, you know, go off on a holy crusade are basically like the nine ring rates and their counter is the nine members of the fellowship who are actually going to destroy the object of power and desire. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. The story of relinquishment or just kind of uh, a thing I've been thinking on recently with it is that the I've been trying to think what is the good that we're trying to attain in this whole quest. And it all seems to be geared toward just peace. It's not like we're trying to push forward into some new goodness. We just want, we just want peace, destroy the ring. So everyone can be cool. You know, the Shire can remain the Shire, that kind of thing. And that seems to tie right in, you know? Well, there's a quote from Thorin in the Hobbit where he says, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. Yeah, that it would. I guess they aren't party animals. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, you know, when I think of the, when I think of any parallel that comes with specifically Lord of the Rings, you know, when you're focusing mm-hmm. on a ring in particular, um, is, is the ring of the Nibelungen, right? Like the, the, Wagner, you know, Wagner based that off of Germanic myth. And I think that Tolkien's drawing off of that too. And there is a constant, I don't know the full story of the ring of the Nibelung, but it's centers around that there's a ring of power that gods and dwarves and giants and dragons are all fighting over um, and that it creates strife wherever it goes. So, uh, you know, I think he's probably drawing on that a lot to inspire both, uh, you know, the, the, rings of power, like in the second and third age, but then also the Silmarils, I think is a much clearer, you know, example of, um, of showing the disastrous effect of people trying to pursue a treasure, you know, and what that represents, what that stands for. Yeah. You know, some people have compared it to like the ring of power being like nuclear weapons. I view that as like a little bit too narrow of a comparison. I, I, to me, it's more like the rings of power our desire themselves, like the desire for power and greed and domination 
And that is what leads people to ill. And it's also interesting that in the way to rise above that is by being a good person, being courageous. And you know, you'll notice that every time there's a major battle in Lord of the Rings, once day breaks, the good guys start to win again. And the evil guys only attack at nighttime. And that's because the evil is afraid of the sun, which exposes it for what it truly is. So like the evil people are inherently fear-based. They sneak around in the shadows and they try to instill that fear in their enemies. And that's how they win. Whereas the good guys, they win by being courageous, staying true to their values and their traditions, even at their own expense. Uh, and that just like rings so true for navigating the world, no matter what age you were born in. Yeah, I think tying in too with what you were just saying on, you know, just relinquishment and just the, the rings representing desire, power, that except for in the elven rings, it seems that the best thing you can do if you are a man with one of the rings or a dwarf with one of the rings is give it up, right? Mm -hmm. I, you never see a case where it's used by men or dwarves. I mean, the dwarves, you don't know a ton of, it seems like, you know, they all get taken, but seems to never lead to anything good. The best thing you can do is just give it away. So let me ask you this. Why did Tolkien choose not to have Frodo destroy the ring in the end? So whereas Bilbo was able to willing, willingly give it away to Gandalf, why did yeah. Tolkien choose for Frodo not to be able to destroy it in the end? And I'll say that I'll say the final thing that, that Frodo says in the end, which gives me shivers, which is that <laughs> I have come, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. <laughs> uh, just heart wrenching. But I well, in one in one way, I think it's Tolkien being and I know he's written about this. I remember in you know letters and things. Uh, I don't have any exact quotes in my head, but I would think it's a bit of just him playing true to the story that just given the journey that Frodo's gone, gone through and the power of the ring and the place he's now in, I mean, what would you have done? You know, because Frodo representing the average everyday person, just that's, it was a power too great, you know, just pure realism. I want to look at it in like a mathematical way, which I know is not necessarily appropriate for fantasy, but I think it's directly proportional to the fact that he is so close to where it was created um, mm. and that he was so close to an evil that was also close by and was <laughs> just next door, you know, Baradur. Um, and, and the fact that Sauron at the time was much more powerful and he was out in the open and he wasn't hiding as the necromancer. Like he could fully just be evil. <laughs> he could just be right. the big evil in the world. He wasn't hiding. He didn't have to shroud his identity in any other kind of other identity. Yeah. And I think there is this theme of the longer you have the ring and the closer you are to the powers, the dark powers, the more the ring takes a toll on you. And people have made a comparison to addiction, where it's almost like addiction to power or really addiction to drugs or anything, that the longer you participate in something that's evil, the more it'll take a hold on you. So that's one way you could look at it. The other way that people have somehow interpreted it 
is that some goodness has to be sacrificed for the world to emerge in a better form. And he's sort of the embodiment of what needs to be sacrificed in order to overcome the forces of evil. It wouldn't be a complete story if Frodo was totally fine living in the Shire happily ever after in the end. It's like he gets back to the Shire, he writes the story to complete his duties, and then he sails off with Bilbo and and Gandalf, who's finished his task of bringing about the Third Age. That's a point where you can see, I mean, we mentioned the war influence. I think that's a point where you can really most clearly see that influence that just, you know, it, it'd be one thing, right? If he destroys the ring, goes back home and everything's good. But he knew from experience, you you have that experience and you come back and you're scarred. And, you know, and you see that in Frodo, you know, he feels the wound on every anniversary of the wound, really literal yeah. representations of it. I mean, it's like shrapnel. It's like when you talk to people that have had such trauma, you know, through war, like physical trauma, I mean, metal in body, you know, um, I mean, to such a great extent that even people will say, like, I can feel when a thunderstorm is coming because of the pressure changes and you can feel that. I mean, yeah, it's like such a direct, I know he says he doesn't like direct comparisons, but that's yeah. a pretty direct one is like, yep, coming back from war, feel like shit. It's, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I want to talk about probably one of my favorite themes in the whole book, which is fate and free will. And there are these really fascinating themes in the book where obviously there is the theme of fate, where there's all of this lore that's handed down throughout the history, right? The sword that was broken shall be reforged. And there's all of this history that needs to be fulfilled to come to fruition. But at the same time, Tolkien really makes it important the aspect of free will and the fact that Frodo decides to come forth in Rivendell and say, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way is seen as being a very important aspect of the story. So I'm interested to hear your guys thoughts on this dichotomy of fate and free will and how it connects to the real world. And I guess like my own sort of view is that everything that is occurring is occurring within the timeless halls of Iluvatar's mind. And therefore, it may not be that past influences present, which influences future in that linear one directional way. It may be more that like the future is influencing the past and the present, and it's kind of all tied together, not bound by time. But at the same, you know, simultaneously, it's the choices that the free people make within the cards that are dealt to them that decides like which direction the reality chooses, like, will this be fulfilled or will it not be fulfilled? And, you know, there's one point where Galadriel says, you know, the fate of middle earth hangs by, but a thread stray, but a little, and it will fade. Yeah. There's, it's, there's so much in that theme. The first thing I want to bring up is more from just the cosmological standpoint there is like an instilled fate in the universe of tolkien from what we were saying the music because when the music plays that is history being written basically up to a certain point and so i guess the first point on that is that in a certain way it is kind of already faded there is there is a faded fated events to happen but at the same time obviously characters have the ability to choose and do what they will but the ultimate 
thing I always think back on is a quote Iluvatar has after Melkor, you know, has his dissonant uh, parts of the music. And Iluvatar says that basically anything that you do to try to disrupt shall prove but mine instrument. Like it'll always, somehow Mm. I will use it to just achieve the ends that I already had laid out. I think that is the framework that most of it works within is that no matter you are able to work to choose freely within this kind of boundaries and Iluvatar will one way or another achieve his ends through it. A correlation in the plot would be even though Frodo doesn't throw the ring into the fire, Gollum then fulfills fate by wrestling with the ring, biting it off of his finger. And so thus Iluvatar's fate was fulfilled even without Frodo's free will. Exactly. It's even a, I don't buy this theory, but a theory I've heard is that, you know, Frodo fails, Gollum gets the ring, and then Iluvatar gave Gollum a little push <laughs> into the fire. <laughs> it's a, I think I, it's one of those things I saw, you know, like on a, a, a meme or something, but it's, yeah, it's to the point. It's interesting. Obviously the most famous quote of Lord of the Rings of all quotes is, I wish it had not happened in my time. And then Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such things, but that is not for us to decide. You know, we are to decide what to do with the time that is given to us. Right. And that's really like, I mean, the best advice any wizard could give. You know, <laughs> here we are living in the world 2021. We're not swinging swords around or founding new cities. The whole world has been developed pretty much. But yet there are things we too can do. And whether we're colonizing other planets with SpaceX, or if you just live in a small town and you're just nice to the people around you and you make their existence a little bit better, we all are meant to do what we can with the cards that are dealt to us in our life. Yeah, that's spot on. There is a difference between the free, the free will that men and hobbits have and that elves have, mm. and the other characters. Mm. Basically that... Elves are tied in with the music. Men and hobbits have this further ability to choose freely beyond what the music writes. And that's what you see, I think, in the ages past. Basically how it connects to the modern day is through that free will. Now here we are living in the modern day as the men of those same stories, the same lineage, but able to choose entirely freely. Yeah, it's like free will and the ability for a being to have free will and to act on it grows as they are distant from the music. So like mm-hmm. for the elves, I mean, notice in the Silmarillion, think about all the times that they talk about, this is my doom. This is the doom. Right. Like, this right. is what you have to do. This is, you know, Melian talks about that all of the time when in, in Baron and Luthien in the, in the, the lay, um, when, when King Elu sends them out, Melian says, okay, well, this is your doom. This is for, you know, this is now foretold. And so as you get farther away from that mythic era, free will, I think, becomes stronger, though it does, like you say, Stephen, exist within the bounds of like what is what is mm. permissible, what's within the great plan. It almost reminds me of there's a concept in Greek myth studies called um, or there's a concept, Zeus's boule. Boule just means his will. And his overall plan, his will, is upheld by Apollo, who gives out the uh, the prophecy through the oracle. And he's almost like Manway in a way, 
I mean, he doesn't have the same aesthetics. Like he doesn't live on a mountain and do all that. And, you know, he doesn't have eagles and all that, but he upholds the order. Uh, you know, it's just an interesting parallel. Well, and I, I like to think about it also as like the multiverse. Scientists often talk about how anytime there is wave particle duality, there's essentially a range of possibilities that can exist at any given time, but it's not an infinite range of possibilities. There's a certain high number of mathematically possible universes at any given time. And you could think about it as like human beings or any earthly creations are collapsing wave functions everywhere we look. Like when I make a decision, when I look at something, I'm collapsing this range of possibilities into one discrete actuality. And that's like basically what we're doing. We're going through the cosmos, collapsing wave functions, deciding with ma which mathematically possible universe we're going to navigate towards. And it gets more complex over time. Like it starts out where, like you said, Brett, like they know they're doomed or they know that such and such is going to occur. But over time, as there's more and more of these divine spirits, there's more lesser spirits, there's more of these various creatures interplaying, doing their own thing on Arda then the complexity just gets far greater and the possible outcomes becomes far greater. And it's, it's really so similar to also the Hindu concept of Hindus think of all of history as a kalpa, which is like, like millions of years and basically starts out all good. Then there's a little kernel of evil. Then they're pretty much balanced good and evil. Then the evil overtakes the good briefly. And then there's nothingness for a long time. And then it all starts over again. Yeah, I mean, now that I think through it more, the idea of there being more free will as it goes on later, uh, or as you are distanced from the Valar, maybe that doesn't track now that I think about it, because like Saruman, he's he's a Maya and he was fully able to, to turn evil. I mean, he had That's complete true. free will to just reject the mandate, but he still was within the bounds of what Iluvatar set. And so even though he rebelled, you know, there's that scene at the end of the, I think it's at the end of the scouring of the Shire. Controversial, I know, but. Or, oh no, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. It's, it's when, I think it's when he dies and then he like, his spirit looks west and then mm -hmm. there's something and then just a wind just like blows him away. <laughs> and he's just like, okay, bye. <laughs> like, okay. That Such sucks. a sad way to. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's briefly talk about Tolkien's views on like what's good, you know, so there is some interesting themes he that keeps bringing up. So for instance, the West is always seen as being good, whereas the East is seen as being evil. Water is seen as being really good. Like the Numenorians are almost like Atlantis, like seafarers, and that's where they get their strength. And that's one of the things that Melkor is most afraid of is the power of the ocean. And then there's light, obviously, you know, the light of Galadriel against the darkness. So there's all of these uh, visual tools that are used to convey his morality. And then like you also brought up, there's something that was not in the movie, which is the battle of Bywater where the hobbits go back to the Shire. And there's all of these, like there's these like, you know, rough men who basically took over control and it's basically like a communist regime. Like they collect, they say like they do more, they do uh, sharing and gathering, but they do a lot more gathering than sharing. <laughs> and so they basically take all, and then they replace the mill with this big, ugly mill that produces more power, but it's not really necessary. 
Um, and then there's also the theme of like the bad industrialization of Saruman and his machine versus the good technology or magic of the elves and the Numenorians, which is advanced, but it's seen as being in accordance with nature rather than against it. So what are your guys' thoughts on what Tolkien would consider to be moral versus immoral? I would say, first off, just to just to start it, is I think it was a great editorial decision for the movies to remove the scouring of the Shire. <laughs> just like, you want to talk about anticlimax, like you just defeated the evil in the world, you know, like an evil demigod, and now you have to deal with these fucking bums from Ariador, like... <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, come on. You know, I think I think the way that that was written was seemed a little anticlimactic when you read the books, but it's important to the overall theme, which is that it brings the it brings the battle to home, right? The, like the Shire is based off of mm. off of the English countryside. Um, I mean, literally a Shire, <laughs> like Hampshire, Oxfordshire, you know, like you know, um, any of the Shires in England, and so you know, he does. You, there has to be some kind of imminence to the threat. I think it's also important to show that even when you think you've defeated all the evil, you've never really defeated all the evil. It's the same sort of thing that happens to Isildur after he defeated Sauron the first time and he's, you know, marching up with his band, like not even putting any guard out because he thinks he's defeated him. And then he's waylaid by a group of orcs, shot with arrows, drowns, and then the ring gets lost into the waters. And so it's the same sort of thing where like you think everything after defeating Sauron would be fine, but you still have to continue fighting the good fight even after the big victory. I think that's a big point, a huge theme and something that uh, a Tolkien scholar, Verlin Flieger, talks a lot about. She's awesome and got a lot of great books and resources. But one of the things she describes is that they're constantly fighting the long defeat. And that implies the end is defeat. It's it's not mm. the long battle to eventually achieve, you know, peace and goodness. It is I think Tolkien even says in an essay, like the monsters will eventually win and you're just fighting them and off fighting them off basically until your end. And I think this is totally one of those cases. Yeah, we defeated evil, but man, there's always something new. Mm. It's kind of a in a way, an overall pessimistic view of things. Yeah, I mean, if you take a cosmological view, there will be the heat death of the universe. So even if we fulfill all of our hopes and dreams, colonize every planet, every star in the solar system, even then there is the inescapable heat death of the universe. So it really is all about the journey. Yeah. I want to now talk about the future so obviously Tolkien has not been with us for some time, but I'm really curious. I've been thinking a lot about if Tolkien were here today and he knew everything going on, what would he have to say about the future? Let's first start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. I think he would be worried about the control that is exerted through modern day technology. Like, obviously it's a great craft mm. and it's a great skill. Like, I mean, it's, it is a great thing for us to literally be able to do what we're doing right now. It's amazing, but there is so much evil that can come out of it. And so I think he would look at all of the craft that we've created and he'd go like, okay, well, to what end? 
Like, what is the purpose of this? He would look at a company like Palantir <laughs> and he would go, first of all, I want, <laughs> oh he would God. say, he would say, I want my royalties, bitch. But also, <laughs> but he would, <laughs> he would say that, but he would also say, oh my God, what are you, what are you using this for? Are you creating, maybe yeah. not with Palantir specifically, but two other technologies, he might say, you're creating raids out of people, people that are tied to a talisman that they cannot shed, that that can reduce them to being a shell, right? And that they're just subject to whatever is flowing through this. Um, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit too poetic of a way to look at it, but I think he would be a little wary of the um, control that our modern day craft exerts over us. I think he would find the aesthetics of all of it to be beautiful. And it seems like his major objection is to the aesthetics of industrialization that it's like, Oh, it makes it cloudy and dark and dirty and sooty and all that. Um, I think he would like the aesthetics, but I think he would be very wary of the, of the control that's exerted. Yeah, that's a good distinction. I think, cause definitely the, the thing we see him lashing out against of his time was industrialization of everything. And yeah, I think a big part of that was the aesthetics and just what it was doing to to nature is the thing that he would always mention. And it makes that really clear, obviously, with Saruman and the ants, just the constant headbutting there. That's uh, which would lead. I wonder what he would say as an environmentalist right now. I'm sure I would I would guess that he'd be, you know, a big proponent of just the advancements in the environmental movement that we have right now. But. I think he would, he seems just so generally wary of, I don't even, I don't want to say progress, but just in a way, right. generally wary of progress. So I don't know. Yeah. I think for Tolkien, the intentionality is so important. Like when you're just pursuing progress as a way to avoid death or to gain more power, like I think he views fear of death as one of the initial kernels of evil that really creates so much of the suffering down the road and the Numenorians, you know, the first men, they lived to be like hundreds of years old because they lived it the right way. They, they held up with their traditions. They were good people. They would pass on the crown to their son once their son was fully grown rather than like holding it onto it in their old age. And they had these great peaceful lives. They died, you know, peacefully at old age. Whereas in later years, the Numenorians were so focused on extending their life and gaining more power. And they tried to elongate their life, but they only ended up preserving rotting flesh for longer. So I think a lot of like our desire to like extend life indefinitely, Tolkien would be really worried about. And also like just trying to get more and more money and, and greed and especially the fact that every year the GDP has to grow. And it's like, well, if the growth rate isn't as high as like the growth rate last year, like not only does it have to grow, but it has to grow faster than it previously was growing. That whole mental framework, I think would be really worrying to him. Yeah. I think he kind of, I think he kind of uh, straddles the line of Luddite a little bit in some of his, just in the themes in his writings. I think we also would have to reconcile with, what would his views be, you know, at the time he was, he's certainly a man of his times. And I think he was pretty forward thinking for his times in terms of, you know, 
race and things like that, he would probably be like, oh man, I shouldn't have gone all in on the East being evil and the West being good kind of thing. Well, it's also, it's not meant to be like a direct allegory. It's meant to be more mythological. Right, right. Well, now let's talk about the best case scenario. So what would Tolkien love to know about modern world? And where might he actually think that things turned out better than he would have thought? Because remember, he was living during some of the toughest times on the entire history of Earth that we know about. And so to see the relatively prosperous, peaceful times that we're living in now, it seems to me like he might actually be more pleasantly surprised than concerned if he knew what we know today. Best case scenario. So I think on a personal level, he would be very uh, pleased with the effect that his writings have had on everything, like within an entire genre. (laughs) He should be immensely proud. So just get that out of the way. But um, I think he would also be pleased with the general state of individuals or their families' lives. Like, you know, everyone, for the most part, can achieve a standard of living, and or we, at least we hope to achieve a standard of living that like every hobbit could have, right? They can eat plenty, they can rest, they can live, they can live an idyllic life. I realize that that's not the case for so many people, you know, nowadays. Um, but it's so much more within grasp than it was certainly during his lifetime when there was rationing of food, there was the ever constant threat of like total war. We don't really have that now. We have different things to worry about. So I think that he would look at that and he'd say, great, so many people can live to their, you know, maybe not 111st birthday, but like their 90th and, <laughs> and have a pretty good life with a lot of good nutrition and can enjoy the all of the goods, like, you know, the sumum bonum, right, of living in the Shire, which is family, friends, country living, plenty of food, pubs, I don't know, (laughs) all that good stuff. Um, I think he'd be pleasantly, I think he'd be pleased. Yeah. Yeah, that the general, just the, especially compared to the times he lived in, and I guess it depends where you are on the world right now, but peace being uh, one of his main ideas of good. I think it's something at a just basic level that you can find. And just especially if he was exactly where he lived, you know, just modern day right now, I think that's something that he would see a lot of good in, a lot of progress in. But yeah, in general, I think he had a pretty just generally like medieval viewpoint of things, one where he looked to the past and said, that was the good time. And man, I'm scared for what's ahead. And it's, it's not pretty or nice to say, because you want to say, you know, he was, that he had good things to say about where we are. But I do just tend to think in general, he, he'd be more wary of where we are now and more looking back to, to a simple, I guess, simplicity is Mm -hmm. what he looks for, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that recurring theme of nothing was as great as it was in the halls of Valinor. And then after Valinor, nothing was as great as in the heyday of Numenor. And so it's kind of like every new age, it gets a little bit diminished. And people have talked a lot about that theme. But there are also some cases where he does give some rays of hope. 
So I just want to bring a couple of those up because it's the best case scenario. In one case, Gandalf says, the world is indeed full of peril and in it there are many dark places, but still there is much that is fair. And though in all lands, love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps, perhaps the greater. So there are some places where he has some hope or also, you know, you mentioned when Sam is almost at the point where he's going to kill himself and relinquish his duties. And then he sees a star and he says, and the narrator says, for like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and higher beauty forever beyond its reach. So I think it's important to remember that Melkor is but one of the Ainur, and there are many other Ainur that are not evil. And though Melkor has put his seeds of evil into everything that's on earth now in the third age, it is still the greater. Good is perhaps the greater than the evil forces. And the other thing I would just say for the best case is I think if Tolkien were alive today, he would be a solar punk. He'd be totally into like, solar technology like you know green bio architecture like you know i mean he literally had hobbit holes with grass on top of them like he was so <laughs> ahead of his time and i also think like you know the elves had high technology and there are some examples of industry and technology and craft being good specifically when the men and you know when the good Numenorians and the elves and the dwarves when they're aligned with the elves what they create is seen as good. So in the best case, I think Tolkien would look towards a future where we have this solar punk type of technology and technology almost becomes invisible and it becomes indistinguishable from magic. And he, Tolkien even talks about how much of our modern day technology is closer to magic than most people realize. So in the best case, we create a kingdom of Numenor much like there was in the heyday. Maybe we will live to be hundreds of years old without preserving flesh and in some unnatural way. And we will have that much more joy and we won't cling to desire and we will spend more time, you know, all drinking together and having joyous feasts. <laughs> and when that. some guy named Anatar comes around, we'll all be ready. Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to Kick him. Kick him out. Kick him out. <laughs> Get a really muscly bouncer. <laughs> Just <take him> <laughs> All right, well, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. So given everything that we know and that Tolkien would know were he alive today, what would Tolkien foresee in our future? What would he see as being the most likely? And I'll just start it off by saying that one of the biggest themes is the cyclicality of history and how history repeats itself in a rhyming fashion over time. So in my view, it seems most likely that there will continue to be these cycles of good and then evil rising and then a battle and then good and evil rising in a battle. And it may be that one day evil will win against good and it may be the end. And it is left intentionally as a mystery that only Iluvatar knows what he has in store for, for Earth and for mankind. And only to mankind will those intentions be revealed. So I don't, I don't see that changing as far as his views of what's most likely. It seems like right now we're kind of in 
honestly, it feels like right now we're kind of in the phase at the beginning of Lord of the Rings where good has been in power for a while, but it's starting, you know, the hand of, of Mordor is starting to grow a lot, a longer reach. And there's starting to be some inklings from various wizards from here and there that we might need to, uh, you know, stand together for some momentous changes in the near future. That's certainly what it feels like when you think about everything going on with climate change, with artificial intelligence, nuclear war, you know, the, the battle for dominance between the U.S. and China. There's a lot of worrying things right now, but we still are in the relatively good, prosperous, peaceful days. Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. The, um, and it's interesting just the from the perspective we're in now, maybe the, the, the optics of what Mordor might look like is different than you know what it would have been at his time and honestly different than what it would have been just in all of history before now. The things that the faces that evil can take mm-hmm. might be things that we have created now, you know? So I, I think that- Melkor is the Lord of Gifts. Right. Yeah, it did exactly. Wow, that was perfect. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it's totally presented as such. And so I think that he would most likely see this as another phase in the long defeat, that this is the new obstacle. And of course, there's there's hope. You know, it's the it's been defeated before, but we're possibly just gearing up for for another another battle. Yeah, I'd see his take on it as just being, yeah, you know, another, we're just another node on the way to the long, uh, in in the long defeat. Um, where would that like place us within the legendarium and like within the myths? I, I don't know. You know, I feel like we're in kind of like an interstitial kind of period right now where there is no big clash happening. Um, maybe we're in like the Hobbit right now. You know, things are still pretty good for a lot of people. And like, there are some inklings of things kind of going bad, right? But things aren't yet so physically present. Like we're dealing with climate change right now, obviously, but it could be so much worse, you know? Like we we aren't totally there yet. Um, That's a good point. We're not quite at the fellowship yet. But, but, uh, you know, smog's still in Erebor. Like not everything's perfect. We can still, you know, things are still kind of, we can sense where there's, you know, evil or, or growing, um, growing evil. But, you know, Tolkien, if he were here, I mean, he's like quintessentially kind of conservative in his outlook. And I don't mean that politically, it could be politically, but he fundamentally views the past as being a better time. So, you know, whatever he sees now will be, probably disappointing <laughs> but like you know we're still on the he's, long he's not going to be spending all day on snapchat i'll tell you that no 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 <laughs> um he would probably call that a palantir right like like you're you know broadcasting your life yeah um or he yeah, would call see far away yeah he would call these a palantir like a phone um right but yeah i think that he would probably see us if we had to place where we are in the legendarium, probably around the Hobbit. I'd think after the great, you know, after definitely after the battles of the witch King, after the fall of Arnor, um, you know, there's like, there was that 
hope that came with the, you know, the new kingdoms of the Dunedain and then those kind of fell to shit. And now we're kind of in this weird interstitial period where it's like, what's going on? Where are we actually going now? We haven't yet fully reached a big enough crisis to say this is the big one, but there's this unsettlingness that's creeping back into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the the last thing I I'd like to say is there's this really great lecture from Ramdas. Um, I don't know if you guys ever read his stuff. Be here now, but he has this lecture where he talks about we come into this world as a soul. And when you're a baby, you don't even really think about your body. You're just like one with your environment. But then over time, we get so caught up with our body, which Ramdas calls the spacesuit, that we forget from whence we came. We forget that we're just this orb of consciousness within a body. And while we may be playing one role this life, we may be Gandalf or Aragorn, or we may do these battles or have these tasks, it's important for us to remember that we're all part of the music of Ainur. Everything that is happening now is but one part of the greater story. And I think reading Tolkien's work is just one of the most accessible ways that people can remember who they really are, where they're really going, what drives human nature. And these are questions that don't have easy answers. And when you portray them through storytelling and myth, they come to life in a way that they oftentimes cannot otherwise. So here's to here's to Tolkien. Thank you for all that you have done, bestowed upon us. And now it's up to us. It's the age of men. The Go for it and do come. what you will. To bring <laughs> the will of Iluvatar into fulfillment. <laughs> yeah, to quote Tolkien once said he did like a some event, you know, in the early 60s, late 50s, and his final cheers to the crowd was to the hobbits, may they outlast all the wizards. Oh, I love that. Nice. Yeah. Well, I think that's Here's a great that. place to end it, unless you have any final words, Brett. Couldn't top that. All right. To the hobbits. <laughs> to the hobbits. <laughs> <laughs>